And so thank you very much to our principal funder, Arts Council England, and thank you also to Culture Island for sponsoring this event. So we are really grateful for your help and support. Um, so first of all, um, I'm delighted to welcome our two poets reading today for this event. Um, and just to briefly inform you about the format of the event, first of all, um, so each poet is going to read for 15 to 20 minutes um, after my introductions, and then we'll follow this with a 10-minute approximate discussion and question and answer at the end. And you're very warmly invited as well to um, ask any questions. Um, so this event comes with um, a content warning in that um, it will include some reference and discussion of childhood sexual abuse. Um, so... Um, if anybody you know, feels triggered you know, about that, then now's your chance to, to leave. Okay, so I'm delighted to welcome our two poets reading today. So first of all, I'm delighted to welcome Podrick Reagan, who's going to be the first poet to read. And um, so Podrick is the author of two poetry pamphlets, um, Delicious, published by Lifeboat in 2016, and Who Seemed Alive and Altogether Real, published by Emma Press in 2017. In 2015, they were a recipient of an Eric Gregory Award, and in 2020, they were awarded the Island Chair of Poetry Bursary Prize. Podrick holds a PhD on critical, creative, and hybridized writing practices in medieval texts and the work of Anne Carson from the Seamus Heaney Center, Queen University, Belfast, where they were a Kieran Carson writing and the City Fellow in 2021. Um, so his um, debut collection, Some Integrity, um, which is available, um, is the recipient of the 2021 Clarissa Leward Prize, um, awarded by the David Cohen Foundation. It's been shortlisted for the 2023 Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry, the John Pollard Foundation International Poetry Prize, and the 2022, it was shortlisted for the 2022 Forward Prize for Best First Collection. Um, so Var um, Anthony Varney Capaldeo, writing about Podrick's work, um, comments that to look up from Podrick Reagan's words is to find oneself gently refitted into the world. And she also refers, they also refer to um, Podrick's awesome originality and honesty. The poems of some integrity bring something new to the Irish lyric tradition. Um, queerness is a way of looking, a perspective grounded in an awareness of the porous and provisional nature of our bodies. So I'm delighted to welcome Podrick Reagan. Hi, um, thank you very much for that very kind introduction, Jennifer, and thank you all for coming out, and thanks, of course, to everyone at Ledbury, and particularly to Stephanie Sikia for inviting me to be here. The first thing I'm going to do is start a stopwatch on my phone so that I'm not taking up all of your afternoon. Um, I think today I want to read mostly new poems, but I'm going to start with just a few things from the book Some Integrity, and given the title of this event refers to queering the page, I thought what I might do is start with two poems that um, in some way meditate on leaving marks on the page, the fundamental act of writing and drawing. The first of these is called 50 Millilitres of India Ink. Opaque, 
and black is gravity. The ink is perfectly unlike the small glass pot whose shape it occupies so passively. It is something's burnt remains that makes it black. It is the sticky leavings of the lac bug that makes it shine. The name of the lac bug has nothing to do with absence, but means, in fact, a multitude. It performs its tiny fractal creep through the paper's knitted capillaries and finds itself astounded with significance. It means, I am not yet dead. I was not untempted to leave this blank. A lot of what I do um, in my poems, I guess, would be covered by the term ekphrases, the, um, that is poetry that is in some way in dialogue with, with works of visual art. Um, I took up drawing during the pandemic uh, because I had very little else to do. And I'm not terribly good at it, but I think of it as a way of asking questions about space and also as a way of making me pay a kind of visual attention to the world, which then I think feeds into the poetry in some mysterious way. This is a poem about drawing. Life drawing, Jacob. Your knees are facts, miraculous and full of bones. Your feet don't prove that God exists, but imply it. Your left elbow is a question about muscle asked in shadow. Your right is much the same, rephrased. You are a tree, a piece of fruit or furniture, and none of these. You're not Keith or Scott or Lee. You are a text I must translate from one language I can only half read into a language I only half speak. You are a man standing. You are and have become biography, my own. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move on to some new work, and I think before I read this next poem, I just want to double-check that there's no children in the audience, and there's not, so I can read this. It's called A Bellum Night. Um, has anyone ever come across A Bellum Night before? They're little... Um, it's, it's a type of fossil. It looks like a little bullet made out of stone, and they come from the internal skeleton of an animal that was the sort of evolutionary precursor to modern squids. Um, I was given one of these as a gift recently by my partner. A Bellum Night. One. Because right now your thighs are not tensed around the sides of my head, and my mouth is empty of your cock's wet nib, I play with this instead. This worn down, tapering, rounded, almost cone of hardened calcites, I roll between my fingers to feel the one-off ellipse of its shaft, or hold up to the window to see its grey-brown core warm with the little light it allows inside itself, like a finger pressed against a torch, but bloodless. It looks salt-mottled and tastes of nothing. No ocean opens in the mind when I press it to my lips, not so much as an estuary. Two. And no, I've never been to old Hunstanton Beach, where you dug it out from its ground-down cousins, without knowing what it was or what million others littered the shore, like, what else, the spent casings of bullets or arrowheads grown blunt from their long disuse since the North Sea was land worth fighting for. Though the best theory to account for their multitude is that the bodies they were once nestled in gave up on living after one last turning of the water into a foam of sperm and ova, which leaves the questions of autotomy, cannibalism, all the tissues too degradable to become geography. Three. An off-white seam runs jagged down its length like an injury. 
Its surface is a register of glances and impacts, against whose grain I read the long, posthumous biography that starts with its rotting free of the tentacled harpoons whose metabolic rhythms gave it what glimmer of organic time it had. I wanted to have lodged in a fish's gills and killed it, to have spent a millennium playing in a forest of kelp, I want to see myself as just one more temporary space traversed by it, a house run through and burnt to the ground. Four. At its attenuated tip, a divot makes a counterpoint against the genotype. And growing from its singularity, I see not the mantle spear it formed inside and not the streaming arms it served as ballast for, but you, fibre by fibre, knitting centrifugally outwards from the crotch. Your pelted belly, legs inflated with their own meat, your waist's embayment and the twinned hillocks of your chest, and the scars beneath it, like threads pulled through and puckering the skin, the whole apophatic tapestry your body is, all shuddering and pitched against my tongue, which ends here, or doesn't if you want. Um, I recently moved to Cambridge after having spent my whole life up to this point in Belfast, and it seems like a lot of the poems I've been writing since then basically amount to look at this cool thing that I found in a museum in Cambridge. So I'm going to read, um, yeah, a number of poems that that happen, I guess, in, in Cambridge museums. The first of these is called Some Invertebrates from the Museum of Zoology. One. Still unmistakably animal, this tangle of meaty threads pinned under glass like an inner ear turned out, an impossible map of an anthill kinked and vascular. I can't imagine how it might fold back into its skin and the soft, not quite shape, but semblance of a form its skin contained it in before it was unraveled and each frill of it attached to a scrap of language, flagellum, rectum, crop, spermathica. Two, this shape inside the mouth, trematoda, double trochies hanging unresolved from their upright consonant. Mimetic, I almost think, of its curtailed mode of living, its reduction to just the necessary apparatus for its continuance. A half inch of spit, innervated and complete. A little genus whose willingness to dissolve itself in the body of the other I can't help feeling jealous of. Three, I put my eye to a glass bubble, a monstrance of sorts, and in its magnifying curves, a white slug small as a lentil, sacoglossa, shield tongue, a pulped utterance growing from a bulwark. Its species feeds on algae, sequesters in its tissues the algae's chloroplasts until it has hoarded enough stolen components to live on light alone and glow like Prometheum. Four. The childish impulse to recoil at these gelatinous affronts to form, the unavoidable imagined presence of them wet on the tongue, mementos of the tongue's own muscle, which, for all its usefulness in giving shape to things, is still sympathetic with the amorphous, a vertiginous intimacy whose only cure is tasting. Five. Acorn worms to backwards crotchets. Sea butterflies like a child's teeth kept in a velvet purse. A barnacle shucked from its crenellations, a drapery of limbs, pale as camembert. 
and all of them labelled, given their Latin place in the deep history of living. A demonstration, I'd like to think, of our capacity not to love them exactly, but to want to. Six. Down on my haunches, I look into the webbed skirt of an octopus. It has been tilted up and opened to display its beadwork of suckers like a host of anuses mouthing oh, oh. I want to ask what god it prays to, what thoughts are juggled between its nine brains to read it like braille. I feel my joints protesting, their dull hard being there, and I don't get up. The next poem is something of a pair or counterpoint to this one, and it's um, called Some Fossils in the Sedgwick Museum. One, invitations every one of them. And though the Victorian glass vitrines keep them safe from touch and touches gradual degradation, it is impossible not to want their weight in your palm, solid and cold as an apple straight from the icebox, but porous, coarse, a little painful even if you grip. Two, ammonites and ammonites, a hoard of rusted coins all stamped with the same radial whirls, decreasing in intervals towards their centres, a record of the fact that they were grown, not made, a secreted, accidental architecture divested of the soft bodies they calcified to house, their beards of many arms, their eyes like swivelling millstones, Three. Then this, a vertebra from a rhino, its dense central trunk, and above it held between converging struts, a pint of air, hollow and soundless as a cut throat. It could be the drive shaft of an ancient tank, a gear in some clockwork whose exactitude rewrites accepted history, and it is in fact. But what I can't quite grasp is that a soul or something like it once pulsed through its gap. Four. Then this, this what, like a framed placenta hanging by a window, its every ridge and vein picked out, tenebrous. And these, bivalves imitating coral in their upright tubular funnels, the jetting celebration of a dried out sponge holding its pose like a fulgurite, an annelid corkscrewed from its top to its cloaca encased in a geode of foam. Five. Invitations too, to bricolage, to imagine monsters dragging their bulk across the ocean floor that will be Norfolk, half-clawed, half-finned, all horror and appendage. But no stranger than the truth gleaned from these leavings, which I can almost hear them whispering. We were here. There was a time before we were reduced to silence and will be again. Six. Crunched and glistering, so many shells concreted in one black stone, it seems to splinter when the light hits. What else could I be thinking of but Pompeii and Herculaneum? In my mind, I pick it up and throw it on the hard floor, kneel to its hieroglyphs and auguries, then walk out, sowing its smithereens over England, in the knowledge I won't live to see them germinate. Um, and I'm going to finish with a little sequence of poems based on fragments of Greco-Roman sculpture in the Fitzwilliam Museum, which is the big art museum in Cambridge. Um, the first of these is sort of shaped like the object that it describes, which is a little bit tacky, but a little bit of tackiness is no bad thing. Um, I've also chosen to 
give the individual poems in this sequence titles, which are the sort of catalogue codes by which the museum records these objects. Four torsos in the Fitzwilliam, at GR.94.1937, Apollo Soroctonos. Like driftwood was my first thought, which was not so wrong, him being too a consequence of slow erosion, and fetched up here a continent away from the mountain he was first excavated from, that is, before he was a he, before the gross stone of him was forced into this imago of soft muscle. But it is not the abrasion of his outer layers that you notice first, their reptilian patterning, and not the yellowish clasp opening on his stretched left breast. It is the fracture of his hip that returns him to the purely geological. It is his curved gestalt extravagant as a hermaphrodite. It is his abnegation of shape that makes him pure gesture, a spurt of stone unburdened almost of everything that might reduce it to a person, flying over it in fact. GR.2.1891 Dionysus I've seen your head, or what I should say is I've seen so many heads exhumed like swollen roots that could make their homes in the vacant space above your broken neck, where, on this one day, of all the days I've come to look at your python-thick remaining leg, your monumental chest, the shallow crater of your navel framed by your abdominals' parentheses, which almost are, but are not quite like the real enough to let me think that underneath this pitted stone whole biomes go about their work of breaking other bodies down to rebuild your own. At this time, our position in this hemisphere, this hemisphere's relative point in both its orbits, whatever atmospheric quirk dictates to the clouds, the fugitive structures they, for this moment, are and are inhabiting, and who could possibly count how many other improbable things have all aligned to let some sun spill through, which your pretty head, were it still attached, would occlude, though your back, with its three cracks like a fish's gills, would still bristle in its shine. I can't regret the choices that have brought me, little supplicant, here before you. GR.18.1891 Eros Traces of wings remain on his back, reads the text appended to this bone-white foot of stone, like an apology for forcing onto him this burden of a name he never asked to hold or to be held within. And so I bent my neck, as far as the glass allows, and see two milky folds pointing like labia, their faint sloped arrow towards the contrapposto hummocks of his ass. There is an old idea that before we were condemned to the sexed body, we, lim we lived, eight limbed, two-faced, complete, and that what we call love is just our best attempt to repossess the double nature of ourselves. This is the opposite of what he represents. He is the whole the self is built to mask and can't. GR.1.1887 River God You could be the Colorado, you could be the Sen, you could be the Tiber you were lifted from. You could be yellow, red, blue or green, or the totality of these, which amounts to the same as their total absence. You could overspill, and if you did, who knows what prayed for growth might come as a result. You could flow not only as a trope. The curve of your spine could be some bowed meander of the Thames, your muscles the rippling of its surface, which, like yours, is only metaphorically a skin. 
Your legs could be diverging shores and the space between them either mouth or lock. Your crotch could be a per- harbour perfect for a market town. And yes, there is something islandish about the rounded slopes of your chest. An algal canopy could bloom on your exterior and choke whatever hair-fine plants might happen to be wafting in your depths. Innumerable fish may well have pushed themselves along your length to dump their gametes on your rocks. You could be nothing but a joke about permanence or interminable reaching after it. And the truncation of your limbs must not be understood as an indictment of the things we've done to water. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much, Podrick, for that absolutely brilliant reading. Um, you know, I, I loved, you know, it was such a treat to hear new work as well. Um, and um, I really loved the, the philosophical thrust and um, the precision in those poems. Um, so we'll talk more about that in a little while. Um, so now it's my great pleasure and honour to um, welcome Alice Hiller. Um, so I really love Alice's work. Um, and um, she's going to read um, poems from um, Bird of Winter, um, which I have here and is also available to purchase. So Alice Hill is a writer from London and Dieppe. She is the author of the T-shirt book published by Ebury Press and holds a PhD from UCL. Her journalism has been published in the Observer Supplement and she, her reviews in the Poetry Review, Poetry London, the TLS, Magma, and other publications. Alice was the founding review editor of Harana Poetry and interviews poets in depth about saying the difficult thing on her Alice Hiller blog, um, which um, I'd really recommend you to have a look at. Alice was a Jerwood Arvon poetry mentee for 2017 to 2018, and she was shortlisted for the Arts Foundation Poetry Fellowship in 2019. Her poems have appeared in numerous esteemed publications, including Poetry London, Stand, the Cambridge Literary Review, Magma, and others. Alice founded and runs a free poetry workshop aimed at supporting and developing poets working with less welcome materials. She curates the estate of the emigre sculptor Oscar Neiman, about whom she has also written. And um, referring to um, Alice's debut collection, Bird of Winter, Noir Al-Sadir reminds us that the root of courage, etymological and otherwise, is heart. Prepare, dear reader, to feel. Please join me in welcoming Alice Hiller. Thank you so much for being here to listen to me today. And thank you, Podrig, for those incredible poems, and Stephanie, and to the festival, and to you, the audience members. Um, I'm going to talk about my childhood experience, but I promise to keep you all safe through the reading, and we're going to end up in a good place. So um, without further ado, and the poems that I talk about will be up on the screen. So when I start to talk about a poem, you can actually see it. Yeah, they'll they'll come in a minute. Um, When I put together Bird of Winter, which responds to my childhood experience of being sexually abused by my mother, but also of reclaiming life beyond this crime, 
I realised the book had to look different in order to act different. I aim to show the reader they're entering a space where they have agency and the possibility of playful interactions. If you flick through the collection, you'll see arrow-shaped poems, gun-shaped poems, erasures and black pages, as well as more conventional layouts. The poems use my own direct experience of childhood sexual abuse to explore a crime that impacts millions of us around the world. I hope to support readers in arriving at new understandings of this complex topic and offer people who share my history ways of living differently beyond what was done to them. Form is my ally and the radical midwife who helped birth the poems. I could queer the page by imprinting shifting power dynamics on the bodily shapes the work took. More conventionally formatted poems sit between the visual works, which I'll also be sharing on screen. Couplets were my go-to form in Bird of Winter. Their paired lines communicate forced joinings, reclamatory meetings, and everything in between. My first poem remembers childhood visits in the park with my mother when the abuse was ongoing. And, oh, I think one back down. It's um, St. James's Park in autumn. It's, yeah, oh, well, it's that side, the little one. Um, you can see the couplets. Um, St. James's Park in autumn. On the lake, the double ducks swim, glued, breast to breast. One is held under, the other rides on top. Couplets also shape the needle's eye sews red silk. It combines excerpts from the Criminal Justice Act sentencing guidelines with single-line witness statements. The needle's eye sews red silk. Single offence of rape by a single offender, victim under 13, 10 years custody. Harsh as ash over sunshine. Rape accompanied by aggravating factors, victim under 13, 13 years custody. Pain distills its own weather. Repeated rape of same victim by single offender, 15 years custody. Sometimes death extends a hand. Aggravating factors, abuse of trust, sustained attack, background of intimidation or coercion, offers the glass of clear water. Schedule 15, Criminal Justice Act 2003-2007 Definitive Sentencing Guidelines. The single lines suggest the isolation of a predated child. When I was growing up in the late 60s and 1970s, there was virtually no discussion of childhood sexual abuse or consideration given to it by the medical profession, unlike now. 
I had no language to comprehend what was being done to me by my mother. The only ways I could speak was through somatized symptoms and troubled behaviors, as in Pistol, which is the next poem. Great, it's the gun-shaped one, yeah. Pistol has been well apart from German measles while in France. Difficult with medicines, aggressive and difficult with other children. Bites and scratches, difficult to get her off to sleep at night, i.e. spoiled. Ovule, your tummy, a hardening ball of ache. Stigma, Papa's photo shows you, aged two, waist deep, in a field of French buttercups with your red anorak zipped and the sky holding you. Text of pistol derived from Alice Hiller's childhood medical notes. Hand erasures offered another key resource when speaking from my younger self. The materials I chose responded to the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD and the subsequent laborious excavations of Pompeii and Herculaneum, which are a theme right through Bird of Winter. These excavations mirrored my own adult piecing together of my younger experiences. The next poem grew from an epigram by Marshall, comparing before and after. Destruction, impact, landscape. Here is Vesuvius, green shady vines, loved dances, hills the home of Venus, submerged in flames and sad ash. The gods would not wish such power. Hand erasures allowed me to represent the gaps that result from the fracturings of trauma. Erased from Pliny the Younger's account of the night of the eruption, the next poem remembers being taken into my mother's bed when I was eight. And now came the ashes over the earth like a flood mother. I was afraid enveloped in a sealed room without lights. Her death, no gods, this night in flames, stopped time, did not utter a single lamentation. Snowfall begins as an account of the emotional numbing that overwhelms many children subjected to abuse. It then becomes something else altogether. Snowfall. Cold is over everything. People scoop and throw handfuls. The sun is slipping down over the edge of the earth. Cold has stolen all the color and stripped the trees. Birds have nowhere to shelter. 
small ones fall off branches and lie without moving. Cold says, you are not loved, you are not wanted, I am the tower and the tower is my silence. I am the cold and the cold is all over. Speak winter, inhabit me. It is small with a pavement of mosaic and fluted ionic columns, so white that it dazzles you. Percy Bysshe Shelley on the Temple of Isis at Pompeii, 1818. Engaging experientially with the child's frozen state allows the poem to understand it as a form of self-protection and self-claiming so that the child becomes also the small temple. Such stillness is not far from death, however. When I was turning 13, puberty began to give me the possibility of an identity as separate from my mother. I then decided to stop eating to end the sexual abuse. After six months, I was hospitalized to avoid brain damage, finally breaking my mother's grip on me. Primary or classical anorexia, 1977, reflects treatment at that time when sexual abuse wasn't yet understood to be one of the potential triggers for eating disorders. Primary or classical anorexia, 1977. In the dark, sparrow becomes clever and pretty. Feather by feather plucked, recovery is easier for fledglings. Some nights tore, starvation sows fine down over her body. Carried away, made to keep still, Tranquilizers improve eating and sleeping. Her clawed breast would regrow. Psychosexual conflict is inadmissible and unseemly. When I was in hospital, I wasn't able to say what had been done to me, nor indeed for many years after, which is common for most of us with histories of childhood sexual abuse. The next poem is shaped for the sedatives, including chlorpromazine and Valium, with which I and many others were treated, making language harder to access. Bird of winter, how are you today? This morning I find a chaffinch. I hear you're eating. No chirrups come from its swollen beak. You're sleeping okay. The chaffinch's beak is almost as long as its body. Have you enjoyed the books I brought in? The beak is reddish in colour. You're 13, you must grow up. Although the chaffinch keeps and separate from your mother, fluttering onto the curtain rail, you can't live at home. It is not strong enough to fly. Tombs line the roads leading to Roman towns. As a teenager, I remained vulnerable to further predations as her door is missing registered. It takes the form of one of the many doorless frames left in Herculaneum, 
Her door is missing and both hinges are hanging and the latch long gone because, oh, so the handle long gone because the latch was smashed off when the burning surge burst through. Finding love and tenderness within a relationship with a girl of my own age when I was a teenager was one of my first steps back into my own body as imprint of a young woman remembers. The shape of her bosom perfectly preserved when ash hardened. Imprint of a young woman. We kissed all the way home in the rain. The husk of your voice masked my being to enter your scented hair, to rest my head on your belly was to become a key in the lock of the world and open my whole self to our turning. Reflecting this transformation, Uprising in Blue and Silver repurposes the lineation of St. James's Park in Autumn to create a redemption song. Bronze statues of five women known as the dancers were found in the Villa dei Papiri with eyes of stone and ivory, uprising in blue and silver. My anger rings the anvil which shoes the mare. Where I was ridden, hooves crescent the sky. It was important for Bird of Winter to give witness to how trauma may continue to present for many years after the original events. Excavation of the gladiatorial barracks, Pompeii. In the pocket of my coat, a screw waits to rip the tip of the finger that dips in for change. But the screw is not real, you say with a laugh. I wipe off the blood. The whole room is painted, though plainly, and four skeletons were found there, perhaps of prisoners. Report of discoveries, 20th of December, 1766. Conversely, speaking of what we've been through and hearing the voices of others allows us to stand together and stand strong as Sagittai, meaning arrows, records. Sagittai, we peel off bark, wing flight, what we're held to, ground against, blades are arrowheads. Fired, we'll leave your hold, eat air, take each cruel, Mark out, then grow our split body back into tree. The last poem I'll share with you is also the final poem of Bird of Winter. It tracks the journey out of loss into new life. If anything I've said has been difficult for you, the Mind website is a good place to go for support links. As I read, O Goddess Isis, 
Breathe slowly and comfortably and let the light of this summer and the community of our shared presences nurture and sustain you going forward. Oh, Goddess Isis, make me your chick. Feed me from your beak. Twice a day, rattle your sistrum. Call me back from death. Each spring, reassemble my scattered parts. Beat me into the sky on hawk wings. I will be your Horus, hovering above them as they shovel the ashes from fluted columns. I will shake symbols clear of silence, bury pine cones in the temple floor, raise beloved Osiris. I will offer up my voice until the ibis fly free of the carvings, until the stars of your nipples dissolve night, until the hems of your tunic reveal this sunrise. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alice. That was an absolutely tremendous reading. Um, and um, just having, you, having heard you read you know, a few times, I think that the, the power of those poems only intensifies with you know, subsequent readings and, and listening. So thank you so much. Um, right, um, so I'm just going to take a, a big, deep breath. Um, and... Um, I suppose I'd like to start off with a question to Podrick. Um, so, just going back to your collection, some integrity. So, what impressed me most about reading this collection, um, but also the poems that you read today as well, um, was that sense of um, a freewheeling movement. You know about many of the poems. You know, taking in um, a lot of different things um, about the world. Um, so this um, a sense of really engaged philosophical reflection, um, but it's also um, extending outwardly into the world as well. Um, and in, in my own work, um, and just generally, I've been thinking a lot about lyric hybridity, um, and I know that that's something that has interested you as well in your academic work. Um, so I suppose I was just wondering if you could perhaps speak to any of those observations, um, and perhaps also how you see your work um, as relating to a sense of a lyric tradition. Yeah, um, yeah, so you mentioned my academic work there, which is scant. I am not an academic and I'm not an academic critic, really, but I did, do, I did a, a PhD at Queen's on um, what I ended up calling creative, critical, and hybridized writing practices. Yeah. So I think at that time, that really did come out of what was for me a kind of crisis with the lyric. So I've always written within a fairly traditional sense of the lyric poem. You know, I think of my sort of important poetic precursors as people like Seamus Heaney, like Derek Mahin, uh, Mitt McGookian, Paul Muldoon, Kieran Carson uh, in, in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and this very particular 
Irish and perhaps even north of Irish uh, lyric tradition, yeah. which is in some ways sort of ironized from the inside already. So I always go back to this Seamus Heaney quote where he says that um, part of his project was trying to get the English lyric to eat things it had never eaten before. So this sense of the English lyric being a form that was never meant to express Irish identity or Irish subjectivity, but it is the, the form that we happen to have at our disposal now. Um, but I think a few years ago, I, I sort of began to mistrust the lyric. I began to mistrust that very individual and romantic sense of self that the lyric I uh, and the lyric situation sort of presupposes. When I say the lyric situation, I mean this dynamic of there being a sort of individual perceiving self, an I, a grammatical I, and a, a physical perceiving I, and then a sort of perceived world. Skeptical about that for many ways because of how it, I think, has a tendency to remove the poet from from the social uh, and can in some ways be a way of trying to insulate the poet from the sort of political and social forces happening around them. Also from an ecological point of view, because I'm not convinced that that is not exactly the same thinking that has brought us to the state of ecological collapse that we're currently living in. Um, you know, it, it sort of tends to view the non-human world as this sort of passive force that, that human identity is then stamped upon. So I did this PhD where I was looking at the work of people like Anne Carson in particular, but also certain medieval texts. Yeah. So sort of looking at, at writers for whom critical reading is a big part of their creative practice, who sort of destroy this boundary between the creative expression of self and critical reading. And I went down that for a little while, but then as soon as I had it in the PhD, the lyric came back sort of automatically in, in a really sort of strong way, and I began to write much more formally let's say, formally conservative and, and sonically lyric poems than I had done before. But as I say, I think that for me, the lyric, the lyric mood is always in some ways ironized from the inside. And, and I kind of, that's sort of what I want to do. You know, I want to take these structures that are themselves quite traditional, but make them, make them eat things, make them eat strange things, make them do strange things. Yeah, that comes across very well yeah. in your work, um, that sense of expansion. Um, Alice, um, so just turning to your work now, um, it struck me um, when I was rereading your poems actually this morning um, that it, it brought to mind um, for me, um, anyway, the work of HD, you know, um, quite a few things I think that you know, brought her uh, and that poet to mind, you know, the, the sense of you know, classical myth, um, illusion, um, and also a sense of tragedy as well, um, but also there's a feeling of passionate assertion um, and you know, obviously queerness as well and connection to the natural world and elements. Um, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit about um, how you worked with the original text that you selected um, in creating some of the poems for Bird of Winter. So I'm thinking about you know, the, the erasure poems, for example, um, and some of the concrete poems. Um. What was really interesting, listening to Podrig read, is I realised we basically just both write poems about museums and books about museums, so it's very straightforward. I think for me, um, I needed... When you throw a ball against a wall and it bounces, it's got an, a, a different energy when it comes back off the wall. And I think whether I was erasing translations of classical texts or thinking about things I'd seen in museums or seen pictures of in books... I was able to create a space of play between what I was trying to find a form of expression for and an, an additional object which I could co-own with my reader. Mm -hmm. And it, it created this, this sort of complex energy which created space around very difficult experiences. Um, 
and, and, and as I say, generated agency, and also was an act of love. The texts that I erase, the um, objects I write about, are actually things I love very deeply. So I was going to a place of love to write about an experience of hate. And I think that sort of, I mean, in the same way that you have, your, your, your lyrics were being complicated, I was, I was tempering the mess, metal of injury with the sort of hammer of love. And that was really what my objects were giving me. And it, it made a new sword from it. Yes, yeah. so. it certainly did, yeah. Um, I mean, I really felt that sense of, um, yeah, as I said, you know, passionate assertion and, you know, power that, you know, just increased, you know, as, as you read. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just a little bit mindful of time. Um, so I'd just like to open it up now um, to the audience um, and invite any questions that, or comments that, you know, people might have. Um, yeah, and there's a roving mic there. So, I, I mean, both of you powered your writing with, in sequences, and um, Alice, you're also writing in a kind of form, and I just wonder how you view the role of the integer to, to the sequence, or the, 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 the smaller piece to the larger whole uh, when, when you're composing your work. Um. Yeah, so the, the sequences is quite a new thing for me. This has, I think, um, become much more of a feature of the, the second book that I'm working on at the minute, where just a lot of the poems happen to be coming out in, in sequences. Um, and I think that each of the poems that I read, each of the sequences, let's say, that I read there are doing a slightly different thing with it. So the first one, the Bellum Night poem, is sort of four different perspectives on one object. Um, then the other two from the, the Cambridge Museums are much more about... Um, lots of different objects. I think one thing that I'm kind of always interested in is fragmentation. Um, and I'm always interested in questions about um, about holes. I'm spelling that W-H-O-L-E-S, but with the, the uh, homonym sort of somewhat intentional. Um, you know, I, I'm, something that I think is kind of the core of my work is trying to animate a sense of the porousness of the body. Um, so the body being not a sort of stable, singular coherent identity, but being a sort of multitude of various systems and various other things working in a sort of uneasy tandem. And I, you know, I think this, this is a, a physical fact about our bodies, right, that so much of our bodies are, for example, other kinds of bacteria, which are not of the self, but are part of it and are necessary for its continuance. Um, and then also, I guess, with particularly the fossils and the invertebrates and the sort of dead things that I'm writing about, or the objects that I'm writing about at the minute, which were once bodies but are no longer bodies. Um, perhaps the fragmentation of the poem is a sort of unconscious representation of that, but the true answer as to why I'm doing this is just because it was easier to write like that. It, it was the shape that the, that the thoughts were taking, you know? Yeah, I think um, for me, the, the, the sort of smallness and wholeness is how I experience life. Um, very, very difficult things happened to me when I was growing up. I couldn't say that I have a coherent sense of identity, but I would say the fragmented parts of me are related to each other. And the work I make, these small poems talk to each other, you know, flow in and out of each other. And, and I think that is how we are. I think we can't have a single, you know, column of straightness, direct statement. We are, you know, complex, multifaceted linked organisms and, and that's also present in my work so um. yeah, 
definitely. Um, another question from Stephanie. Thank you both so much um, for that. Those absolutely staggering readings. Um, I have another question about museums. So um, I too am a big fan of museums in my writing. Um, but I think for me, the concern is with the structure of a museum itself and what it's trying to do, sometimes down to the very nature of the building. Um, is that something that you think about? And if so, in what terms? Right, okay. um, yeah, so as I said, writing about art objects has always been a, a completely central part of, of my practice. Um, and I think prior to the new work, I was really just writing about objects as if the space where I saw them was not really all that important. Uh, and this interest in, in the museum as a space is, is a new thing. Um, I'm sort of wondering about, is there potentially some sort of connection between the museum, the picture frame, the poem, and liturgy? So some sense of all of these kind of framing devices being a way of saying we are somehow entering a space that is in some ways not the same space as the general course of our lives. Um, but then I'm also sort of very cautious about the particular kinds of museums that I've been visiting to write about. So for example, I've been going a lot to the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge. Um, which is a really fascinating museum full of incredibly, uh, wonderfully interesting objects, but I don't think that I could write about it because I don't feel like I have the resources in my own writing yet to really tackle the, let's say, well, yes, let's just say racist histories that led to that museum being founded and being in the place that it is. Um, whereas I feel much safer dealing with sort of geology and natural history museums. Um, even though I do then wonder, does that replicate the very same problematic ecological relationship that the lyric can bring to the non-human? Um, yeah, so it, it is something that I think about, something that I try to think about critically. Um, I think I'll leave that there, actually. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think um, I went to see the Naples Museum, which is really a museum of a museum, um, the display of the Pompeii artefacts, quite a lot of it is as it was 100 plus years ago with a special secret room which in the past only gentlemen could enter because it had the erotic art. So a museum is very much a sort of history and aspic um, from the founders to the backers and, it, it, and that is the portal through which we gain access and I think we have to be aware of that. Um, Pompeii and Herculaneum are also interesting because they were co-opted into a project of Italian identity and some kind of brutal restoration ensued. Um, and then they've now been partly retaken over by uh, some American teams as well as Italian teams who are supposedly who are excavating more sensitively. So there is a lot of politics and sort of identity grabbing around these topics. But at the same time, they are where and, it, and I also work a lot with catalogues and just books because I can't often get to the museums I want to go to, so I look at pictures of objects. They are where we can see these objects which are products of their time and shaped by their time, but they sort of have an intrinsic you know, beauty often. A starting point for Bird of Winter was a plaster cast of a dog um, that was made at Pompeii. It was actually a plaster cast made into a void left in the ash. And those plaster casts are extraordinarily evocative for me because they are, you know, framing absence. And um, it's, it, I think it, I mean, it's, it's a very complex area, but 
but there are a huge gifts to be received, as I think both of us, all three of us, would agree. But we have to recognise that the container has complexity. <laughs> I mean, the navigation of absence in your work is, is fascinating, and it, it's something that um, I guess I try to think about is the poem as a way of shaping absences, as a way of inviting the reader in, yes. um, which is something you said quite explicitly at the start of, of your talk, where you said that you were trying to do these different formal things as a way of letting the, the audience know that they had agency in these poems, they had yes. sort of spaces carved out for them to exist in. Yes, yes. Yes, no, and I, and I think space and absence mm. are creatively... In a way, some of the most honest spaces, we can't, we almost make, we make works marks around what we cannot say, and the marks delineate, um, you know, and the energy, and we ask other people to look at our marks and co-imagine that energy and somehow form a relationship with us to that. Um, so, which, you know, which I love in your work as well. Um, so on that note, um, so we're coming up to the end of time. Um, are there questions from the online audience? Yeah, one question from Caroline Davies put to both of you. What are you currently working on and what might we expect from you in the future? Can we have a little bit of insight into what's coming up next? Uh, yeah, so the, the bulk of the poems I've read today are from uh, a new work in progress and which I expect will be a second collection. I'm still in fairly early stages of it. I have a bit of an idea for a structure, so I think there's going to be some poems about, um, shall we say, organically formed objects, things like fossils, those are preserved. Um, invertebrate specimens, I was writing about some things about seaweed. Um, there's going to be some poems about sculpture, about um, kind of made things in three dimensions. And then at the centre of this book, I have a fairly substantially long essay about, well, it's not really about, it's about a thing called a gugot, which is a weird, sexy kind of rock formation that forms in the forests of Fontainebleau. Um, and uh, this essay is I am kind of using one of these gugots that I encountered in the Natural History Museum as a sort of confessor. So I'm speaking to this rock about various issues with my own embodiment. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm working on a new project called I Am Colour, which takes the idea of memory as a prism that can bend and slow the white light of denial that fell over my childhood and adolescence. And it's a series of interlinked essays and poems, and each one is named for a colour and looks at, at that point in my life through the lens of that colour. So um, that, that's keeping me busy. And I had the great honour of premiering or trying out some of the poems for the first time at Ledbury outside the church last night. So that was very precious. Um, so thank you very much again for being here. And can you please join me in thanking our two poets? Thank you.